Super Talk Mississippi media production. Find your new ride at Kia McCombs all-new location at the corner of I-55 and Highway 98. Come find out why McComb loves Kia McComb at the corner of I-55 and Highway 98. Right on the corner, right on the price. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to midday super talk mississippi i'm your host gerard gibbert along with rhino we have relocated the element wealth studio to two mississippi museums today for empower mississippi's unleash mississippi event rhino safe and sound back in the super talk mississippi headquarters studios on this friday eve (laughs) <laughs> we made it to Friday Eve, certainly indeed, and uh, the weather looks like it's about to clear a bit. We had some precipitation, Rhino, that moved through the Magnolia State yesterday. It certainly did on me when I left the studio. And When I got home, the uh, driveway was wet, and it was sprinkling a bit. I wouldn't exactly say it was any sort of a torrential event, but we... Um, we welcome some precipitation and moderating temperatures. Do you think we're done with the triple digits? Oh, Lord, I hope so. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, so we got a great show lined up for you today. Once again, we're at two Mississippi museums downtown Jackson. Come by and see us if you're in the area. Coming up next on the program, Grant Callen, the founder and CEO of Empower Mississippi. And then we've got Elise Marcelino, director of Embark, Empower Mississippi. That is the organization that uh, works with those who seek to establish charter schools in the state of Mississippi. And then J. Ron Smith, senior fellow, right on crime, joins us at 1135. At 1150, Arkansas Senator uh, Brianna Davis, uh, we look forward to speaking with Miss Davis, because uh, in particular, we kind of have a, a kindred spirit with Arkansas. That is, from an empower perspective, Arkansas. You know, early on when Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders was seated, uh, sought to get past a sweeping school choice bill, and was successful in that effort. And so, Arkansas ahead of us from a school choice perspective. And we understand that Alabama is on the cusp of getting something done with respect to education choice because already we got uh, Governor Kim Reynolds in Iowa. Wow. Sweeping bill that passed in Iowa last year, Arizona, gaining a lot of traction, shall we say, throughout the United States. And Mississippi is lagging a bit, which is unusual for a deep red state. We got to get more done. We've had some, some wins there. We've had some successes. We've certainly implemented some 
education choice policies, but we got more work to do, and we look forward to discussing that today. Speaking of education choice, two ESA education scholarship account moms, Leah Ferretti and Allison Talley, will join us in hour two at 11.05 today. So it's going to be a great day. Robert Enloe, President and CEO of EdChoice. Also, Senator Chris Johnson on the program. Represents Forest and Perry Counties. Constitution Chair, Finance Vice Chair. He was also um, involved in, authored the immediate expensing bill uh, from a tax perspective. Immediate expensing, we'll get into that when uh, Senator Johnson joins us later on in the program. I think that was an incredibly pivotal piece of legislation much needed in the state of mississippi especially given the fact that well the democrats are allowing the immediate expensing provision of the tax cuts and jobs act the so-called trump tax cuts enacted into law into 2017 which did allow for 100 percent expensing of capital investment In the year of purchase, that is being phased out in accordance with the schedule in the law. And, of course, Republicans would like to reinstate that to 100% and make it permanent, as should we be pursuing with respect to the entire Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. I think that's critical to keep our economy rolling on at the federal level is to make the Trump tax cuts permanent. We've discussed that before. The individual provisions, they uh, expire at the end of 2025. That means, folks, your taxes are going up at the end of 25 uh, for tax year 26 unless action is (coughs) taken by the U.S. Congress. And at this point, The only thing the Democrats want to do is raise taxes. Now, they'll tell you they only want to raise it on those making more than $400,000 a year, but that is just horse hockey. They really uh, can't get the money that they want simply by picking the pockets of the so-called rich, those greedy, dirty, dastardly, evil, rich people. You can't get the money they want. And why do they want more money anyhow? It's not like that enters into their spending decisions. They just spend freely, recklessly, without any concern for the revenue side of the house, of the income statement. And like we've uh, shared before on the program, we're set to generate a $2 trillion deficit for fiscal year 2023. That ends in just a couple of weeks here, the end of September. That would be on the heels of a $1.4 trillion deficit that was generated for fiscal year 2022, and that was, of course, after a $2.8 trillion deficit under Joe Biden's first year, 2021. But the president still runs around the country boasting about how he reduced the deficit by $1.7 trillion. Well, he's not being honest about that. I know that comes as a surprise. He is not honest on a regular basis, and Americans deserve, at a minimum, honesty, integrity, and transparency from their president. I don't think that's too much to ask, but that's uh, that's what's happening. So we're down here talking about three major policy areas, education freedom, common sense justice reforms, and work. And, of course, the category of work encompasses all economic policy, the dignity of work, the value of work, all of that is st- all of that stems from 
good, common-sense, conservative economic policies. On the ceasefire text line, that's 601-879-4395. Ben from Madison says, these legislators need to be pressed on school choice expansion before the 24th session. Can't keep being left behind. I agree, Ben, and that's what we're doing here today. We will have a number of legislators in attendance who support choice. I think we're going to see probable Speaker of the House Jason White also carry the flag in the the uh, state house for school choice. I'm not really sure at this point where Lieutenant Governor expected to be Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman, current Lieutenant Governor, stands. The expectation is that he will prevail in the general election. I do know that the governor is on board and supports expansion of uh, choice options in the state of Mississippi. It, it's a it's a much misunderstood policy area, and it, it, I think it's incumbent upon all of us that uh, are advocating for school choice to really educate our legislators about what this means, and the public as well. The public, uh, in many instances, uh, gets their information from opponents of school choice who, I know it comes as a shock again, just fabricate all sorts of stuff about what the policy really means and how it would be implemented and put into practice. And uh, so it's our job to educate about that and how it would be implemented and what it means and what the benefits and value of those policies are. We'll hear from Grant Callan, the founder and CEO of Empower, next to discuss that. Terry on the ceasefire text line in Bogachita says, I don't hear much from our senators and representatives. I hear a lot from the surrounding states. It's a shame we couldn't have John Kennedy and Marsha Blackburn to stay in and represent our state, says Terry in Bogachita. Well, we're going to push them. I hear you, Terry, and I understand your concerns. We're going to keep pushing them. We're going to keep promoting these um, these ideas and uh, and make sure that they stay on the forefront of the policy agenda and push things these things through. Also on the six six two on the ceasefire text line, I almost hurt my neck every morning nodding my head to the journey intro. Well, so do I. As a matter of fact. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a great tune to get us going every day on middays, separate ways, 10 o'clock. By the way, ever watch the video, Separate Ways? It's back in the, the glory days of music videos in 1983. It was recorded on a wharf in New Orleans. And the young lady featured in the video was a, and still is, a New Orleanian, a native New Orleanian. Pretty cool journey. Separate ways. Great music. Well, it's time for a break here on uh, Middays. Once again, we're at two Mississippi museums for Empower Mississippi's Unleash Mississippi event. Coming up next, Grant Callen, founder and CEO of Empower Mississippi, the Element Well Studios in downtown Jackson today. Days with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. Right. On Super Talk Mississippi. Let's do it. 
everyone. It's middays. We are live from two Mississippi museums today. We've relocated the Element Well Studios. Grant Callen, founder and CEO of Empower Mississippi, uh, joins us now. Hey, Grant, how's it going? It is a great day, and I'm excited to be here, and I'm thrilled to have you here and the Super Talk team. We're thrilled to be here as well. Uh, Second time that we've hosted the show, broadcast live right here uh, from the Unleash Mississippi event. I'm thinking it gets bigger and better every year. It does. It does. Uh, This is your second time to be here, our third time uh, this is our third annual event, and I'm sure your listeners know of your affiliation with Empower as chairman of our board and have been for many years. So it is a great joy to have you hosting your show here, but also moderating a panel for us this afternoon. Yeah, looking forward to that. Well, it's an honor uh, and a distinction, I feel, to be affiliated with the fine organization that Empower is and have enjoyed working with you, the other board members, the great team at Empower. Uh, we've had, I think, some great policy wins and accomplishments. I think that our message and our philosophy about public policy across the three broad areas that we advocate for has, has truly resonated with our lawmakers, and we've had some success. But we're here because we got a lot of more work to do. That's it. And that really is our message today, that when you think about what's been accomplished in the last 10 years as a state, it's tremendous. And yet, we still have some big challenges and big opportunities. And I really do see this next four-year term as an incredible opportunity to create public policy that creates a free and prosperous Mississippi where anybody can rise. And that's, you know, that's our mission at Empower. It's about creating a Mississippi where anybody can rise. And there's a host of policies that will do that. And, you know, we, well, one of the things that we're, I'm talking about this afternoon when we kick us off is the common thread that you will see amongst all of our panels th- today and also the, all the policy proposals that we advocate for yep. is we believe in the innate dignity and worth of every human. And with that comes a commitment to seeing people earn their own success. So... We want to see people rise, but we want to give them the tools to build a life of meaning and purpose themselves. So this is not about growing government, growing dependency. This is about freeing people up to create a great life for themselves. And so whether you're talking about education, whether you're talking about work, whether you're talking about, you know, common sense reforms to our justice system, it really is about creating a state where everybody can climb, everybody can create a great life of meaning and purpose and uh, you know, at the end of the day, government can't give away anything to make people flourish. What we can do is create opportunity and tear down barriers. Yeah, abs- absolutely. And, and uh, th- those three sort of pillars of the organization, uh, those policies really transcend all three, a- a- as yeah. you indicate. And Mississippi, I think, has made great strides. We, we could all uh, take some uh, some comfort in that and, and celebrate that a little bit. But like we said, we got more work to do. What is on the horizon? What What is it specifically that Empower would like to see happen in the state? 
Yeah. I mean, there's there's a couple of things that we uh, really organized our panels around today because we have heard lawmakers say these are the kind of things they want to focus on in the coming uh, four-year term. So one of those, you've already mentioned it, is education freedom. Yeah. Um, it's been a topic of conversation at the Capitol for over a decade this desire that parents are rising up around the state saying we want more options about where we send our kids to get an education and to their credit lawmakers have responded in creating charter schools they've created other options but when you look at the whole landscape mississippi is not a state marked by great options in fact you you just compare us to florida there are 48 percent of the kids in florida are currently, uh, those kids are in a school that's not the one they're zoned for. Hmm. So nearly half the kids in the state of Florida are choosing where they go to school. You know, the vast majority of those are still in public schools. But because they're choosing where to go, they're choosing a public school across town. And the result is a rising tide has lifted all boats in Florida. Well, even for all our progress in Mississippi, only about 16% of our kids are in a school that's not the one that they're zoned for because of their neighborhood. So there's a, there's a great room for improvement, and I have heard a, a lawmakers on both sides of the Capitol, House and Senate, say in this new term, the time is ripe to give parents more options. And so when we think about options, a lot of times that comes down to kind of three proposals, charter schools, open enrollment, and education savings accounts, okay. which which are really education savings accounts, ESAs, are about private choice. Charter schools are public schools of choice. And open enrollment is about choosing a different public school, maybe outside your district. And they all free up kids to choose, and there's sort of pros and cons to each one. So we hear uh, lots of objections to that, but most of those objections aren't really rooted in fact. One of those I'll just put on the table is there's this perception that school choice and so-called vouchers means that the state just sends checks to families and we rely on them then to invest that in their education setting uh, choice, but that's really not how the program works. No, there's great fiduciary protections to make sure dollars are spent the the way they are intended, and we are not creating this out of thin air. We're modeling uh, any of these reforms on successful programs around the country. And so with an ESA program, Education Savings Account, the way these programs are designed and have been successful in other states is you take often the state portion that would have been spent on your child in a neighborhood public school. Uh, in Mississippi, that's, you know, five or $6,000. And you put that in a protected account that, that parents control. And then they can use that to, to pay for tuition at a private school. They can use it for often tutoring or assistive technology, uh, curriculum in some cases. But there's a very limited scope of things that you can spend it on, and it all has to be to advance the education of your child. And uh, for an ESA, you can't actually use those funds at another public school. That's open enrollment. And so it is really important that you distinguish which which type of choice are we talking about because they impact families in radically different ways. All of them are positive, and they all have to be well-designed. 
but the, as I said, the great thing is that we're not doing this in a vacuum. We're doing this modeling legislation on what's proven successful around the country. And yeah. the, the great thing about these, all of these choice programs is they not only help the kids that are in the program that are choosing something else in the long term. In states where you implement choice, the public schools actually do a lot better, too. And that's what we want is a win-win for everybody. Yeah. And, uh, again, this misconception that checks are just sent out and people just then spend it however they want is absolutely not true. The implementations I've seen, such as in Arizona, uh, actually uh, the recipients of the scholarship accounts use a portal to select approve services or could be uh, products such as uh, books yep. and, and uh, even some technology and so forth. But but those are approved on the portal, and then they simply use their account that's been allocated then to, to purchase those items. So it's not like they just have this free cash in their bank account. It's important, I think, we point this out because we've seen that being used in political campaigns against candidates who support school choice. I just want to make sure that's clarified. Yeah, it, it's just it's just patently false. And yeah. there's a lot of fear-mongering and scare tactics that people use to, to, to point at school choice and say it doesn't work or it's not fair or it's a waste of money. Um, but if you talk to families around the, around the country that are using these programs, right. they love them. Yeah. And it's, it's life-changing. And, and you're right, there's great protections in place. Um, that's not to say we should just throw bills out there they're willy-nilly. These yep. things have to be well-designed, and we can do that. And, um, you know, I'm thankful the lawmakers that are talking about leading on this in both chambers are the kind of people that do their homework. And uh, we're certainly going to make sure that these bills are well-designed and there are protections in place for taxpayer dollars. A couple of minutes left. Let's turn our attention to the category of work and economic policy. We were strong advocates for the tax reform that we got through. Uh, the, uh, the the legislature and signed by the governor in 2022. We also were successful in getting the immediate expensing legislation through. Talk about that. Well, both of these are, uh, you know, they may be kind of boring to average people, but when you get into the details of what it takes to spur economic activity, to encourage business growth, so they are hiring more people, making investments, these are the kind of things that make a huge difference. Yep. And so work matters. We want more people working, and both cutting the income tax and the full expensing bill are ways to get more people working. And let me say this as the music comes on. There is still time. If you're listening to us and you want to come join us at the two museums, we still have room. We would love to have you come join us. We we kick things off at 1 o'clock, and we run through 5 o'clock with a big reception. Come join us. We'd love to have you here. Absolutely. Appreciate your leadership and your insight, and uh, looking forward to a great event and moderating the panel later on today, Grant. Grant Callen, founder and CEO of Empower Mississippi, has been our guest. We're stepping aside for a break in the Element Well Studios at two Mississippi museums, Elise Marcelino at 1050. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi.
Welcome back, everyone. It is middays. We're at two Mississippi museums for Empower Mississippi's annual Unleash Mississippi event. We're talking about school choice and work in common sense justice reform. Chris from Oxford on the ceasefire text line. I see, Rhino, you and Chris been having a little exchange here. Uh, tell me about this Connie's Fried Chicken. Oh, Oxford. yeah, it's a Tupelo staple, but they've recently announced they're opening one in Oxford, and he said he hadn't got to the one in Tupelo yet, so I gave him a suggestion to check out when they get the one in Oxford open, because if you haven't had a Connie's Chicken Biscuit with a little bit of gravy on it and a blueberry cake donut, you are missing out. <laughs> oh, that sounds pretty cool. Looking forward to that. So Jeff on the ceasefire text line, not a fan of school choice. Not surprising, of course. I think it's fair to say that uh, Jeff is, um, I don't know, would, would you consider Jeff a left-leaning rhino? Is that fair to say? Mm, I don't know. I don't know. Not not from his okay. history of text, I wouldn't say so. Okay. All right, so I didn't he mean to He just has an opposition you. to school choice. Okay. He says uh, any added program is another avenue for fraud. Well, there's no doubt. Anywhere there's public money, there's always the risk of waste, fraud, and abuse. I totally agree with you on that, Jeff. says everyone is a conservative until there's a program that they can benefit from with no cost to them. Then the liberalism comes out. Well, let's, let's think about that from a school choice perspective. This isn't a program, per se, in that we're just going to create some new um, government process and, and some new government benefit that requires additional government funding. This really is just giving people more purview, more control, more choice over the money that is allocated to them as opposed to central planning government making that decision on their behalf, such is the case when government says, okay, we're going to allocate X dollars, eight, nine thousand dollars, whatever it is of state money to the education of every child in your home. And by the way, that's going to go to the district or the school which services the address at which you live. That's the way it currently works. That's where it goes. So um, in the case of school choice, the student, the family, has the choice of allocating those funds to the education setting they believe makes the most sense for their child and would allow their child to flourish from an education perspective. So this is a completely different uh, scenario. In fact, I submit that its opponents of school choice generally are on the left. It is widely supported from people on the right, including Donald Trump. And, and by the way, every other candidate for president on the Republican side advocates for education, freedom, and school choice. No doubt about it. And where you're seeing the most traction across the country at the state level, of course, is in the red states. Again, Arkansas, uh, Florida, Arizona, uh, Iowa, another. And then close to getting something done is Alabama. But virtually every other Republican-controlled state is strongly considering education choice legislation uh, if they have some degree of it like we do here in Mississippi with the 
dyslexia scholarship and the special needs bill. Uh, we're looking to, of course, expand on that with more education choice options. It's really what it's all about. I also have said many, many, many times that the only way to truly address, rein in, prevent waste, fraud, and abuse in these programs where public money is uh, is being allocated, is being used by individuals, is through technology. You're not going to do that by hiring an army of people to go manually check all sorts of of uh, items like eligibility and continued eligibility. Let's take SNAP, TANF, Medicaid, housing assistance. All of those programs have eligibility requirements. Typically, they are income eligibility requirements. Uh, the unemployment benefits, we talked about that yesterday. What I think uh, the figure, Rhino, $163 billion of fraudulent unemployment claims. And the reason is because we have very poor systems. And the systems are the only way to handle that sort of volume and effectively thwart and prevent abuse. And the school choice systems, the good news there is that these are new new technology. These aren't old legacy systems that don't have those sorts of safeguards built into them. These, Because this is a relatively new concept, the systems that are used to manage the programs are, are new and include those options. And so this is not like... This is not like unemployment benefits where you just send checks out to people. This is not like housing assistance or TANF where that's the same. Um, you, you have more control over that, and that's just money in an account. And you can only use it online through a system that only allows that money to be allocated and spent on those goods and services that are uh, on the approved list and that are published online. You can't just go use it to buy something on Amazon, for example. So that's, it's a completely different matter. I appreciate your concern, uh, Jeff, but I, I would in, encourage you to think about that. And that's there's been no really evidence that there's any kind of widespread fraud in school choice portal systems the way there is, for example, in unemployment or Medicaid. In fact, the general accounting offices, I think we talked about this on the show about a month ago, published a report a couple of months ago which uh, shows that improper payments at the federal government level reached $270 billion last year, $80 billion of that in Medicaid, and that's just because we have terrible systems, just bad systems. And the systems are unable to keep up with the volume. When you got 90 million people, you can't hire enough people to, to adequately and effectively vet and check and review and research and, and approve um, every applicant, you've got to have systems that are integrated and, um, and and have access to information to ensure that what they're saying on their application is accurate and true and, and uh, meshes up with what's reality. Let's see. Uh, there was something else. Ben from Madison says, in my opinion, school choice would help create competition. Competition is only going to improve overall education in Mississippi. And that's, that's part of the goal as well. Ben, it's, it, a lot of the, the public school um, supporters, and, and I shouldn't even say supporters, we support public school. I mean, my daughter was a teacher in public school for 10 years. As an example, yet I also support school choice. I think the two can coexist. But you're right, Ben, in that. 
there's there's a lot of protectionism in the education environment. Lots of protectionism, and the uh, hardcore education unions and education zealots don't want any encroachment on that. They like the protectionism they get from from federal and state and even district policy. They they sort of have a protected gig. gig. I'm all for it in, on the ceasefire tax line. In my district, Corinth School District, fights it tooth and nail. Every time this is brought up, it's sad to see because Corinth School District is truly an inner city school who's just managed to suck a huge budgetary amount from the city. It's not very good and managed to um, manage with lots of outside money, but once you get inside, you quickly realize how bad it is. And, we, and in Mississippi, we've got the... Really, a, a broad spectrum of really high quality, very successful, high performing school districts. They get they get rated very high. Their graduates do well, and all the way to those who are failing. It's dismal. It's terrible, and it's it's not a panacea. It won't solve all those problems, but um, it's it's certainly a move in the right direction where it makes sense. Larry says seriously, can you explain the high points of how school choice works? What everyone wants to go to the same school capacity or the school is obligated for transportation of students. So here's a way I can explain it, Larry, is there, there's no um, proposal in any school choice provisions and legislation that would in any way harm uh, any school district. That's not the idea. So successful school districts, there's there's certainly no intent to harm. We don't we don't want to harm the unsuccessful ones. We want to improve them, and we believe this is a way to do that. <clears throat> but no, obviously it's not logistically possible or practical to just say, hey, let let's just move all the kids out of the school district that's that's uh, rated an F, that's adjacent to one that's rated an A, and just send them over there. Well, you can't do that. That's not practical, and nobody's advocating for that. But there are other options as well. Um, school uh, education scholarship accounts for private schools. The private schools don't have to accept them, and and the scholarship accounts don't pay the entire tuition. They simply pay the state's portion that that a student could use to go towards their private school tuition. Um, but again, the private school doesn't have to accept them. It's just an option. It's just a way for them to take the money assigned to them from the state and choose the best setting. But of course, that's that's constrained by limitations in in, in practical um, practical parameters that that would be put into practice. It's it's not exactly what I think is widely misconceived of. We're coming right back with Elise Marcelino, director of Embark at Empower Mississippi. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Keep rolling. Three, two, one. On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's middays, and today we're live from two Mississippi museums for Empower Mississippi's Unleash Mississippi event. We welcome to the program now Elise Marcelino, director of Embark at Empower Mississippi. Elise, good to see you as always. Good to see you. All right, so tell the uh, the audience about Embark and what is its role within the Empower umbrella. 
Embark is an initiative of Empower Mississippi. We are a new schools accelerator. So we started a little over a year and a half ago with the goal of finding, guiding, and investing in new school founders in order to shorten the distance between idea and doors open. So we connect with new school founders all over the state. And in particular, we work with those who want to open charter schools and micro schools or alternative, flexible, small education settings that are most often private. Yeah, so charter schools in particular, I mean, we had a very ambitious goal when when Empower was formed. We have, uh, to be honest, we really haven't realized that goal, but we're working on it. There, t- Talk about the process. There is a charter school authorizer board that is appointed, I believe, the members of that board by the governor, lieutenant governor, speaker, right? I don't remember the composition. So How does that work? Governor, lieutenant governor, and the department, the State Department of Education, okay. superintendent. Okay, governor, that. lieutenant mm-hmm. governor. And how many are on the board? Seven. Seven on the board. And so applications for charter schools, if an organization seeks to, to build, establish, create a charter school in Mississippi, there are some limits on that in accordance with our law. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they have to complete a, a fairly, fairly detailed and, and comprehensive application. Yes. And make that pitch to the charter school authorizer board mm-hmm. who then has to approve it. That's right. So uh, the application ends up being many, many, many pages long. The process itself takes, uh, so so typically you submit a letter of intent in March, you submit your full application in May, and then it takes you another six months all the way to September to receive a final approval vote for the by the board. So we're coming up on the end of September where we will see one application, someone that Embark has been supporting, receive a final vote by the board for approval or denial. So how many have been approved, let's say, the last couple of years? So at this point, the charter law is 10 years old. As of this fall, there are 10 charter schools now total. open total. total across the state. Now, in Mississippi, you can only apply to open a charter school if you are in a D or F rated district. Uh, post-COVID, we've seen district ratings shift quite a bit, so that whereas before there were 30 plus districts where you could apply to open a charter school, last year there were only, or this past year, there were only 14 districts where you could open in the entire state. So obviously that's a hugely limiting factor yeah. on those who are interested in providing great education options across the state so we only saw two applications made this year and only one moving towards final approval okay so that would does that mean then at least it oh, there are only 14 d or f districts That's in right. the state out of what 120 or so what's the uh, number now a close to a little over 100 mm-hmm. a little over 100 total districts that's right is that right yes okay all right, 82 counties, 100 districts, which means that some counties have multiple districts. We'll have a county district and a, and a municipal district sometimes in the larger counties in particular. Mm-hmm. That is the way that's structured. All right, so uh, the, the charter school, um, the folks that organize a charter school and seek to create one, to open one up in Mississippi, are these typically private Mississippi companies or the out-of-state companies that are in this charter school business combination? Right. So in Mississippi, one of the reasons that Embark started is because we saw that really we have what we're calling homegrown operators, people who have a who grew up in Mississippi or have a strong connection to Mississippi wanting yeah. to come back to the state to improve education options. In Mississippi, you have to be a nonprofit organization to open a school. So uh, we do have one network in the state that is in both Tennessee and in Mississippi, but in general, they tend to be single-site operators or people who just want to bring a great education to their community in Mississippi. Okay. So 
Do you feel like that the charter schools, this may be a question you don't even want to answer, but do you feel like the charter school authorizer board sees as its goal to really promote the opening of charter schools when they meet all the criteria and requirements, or are they more leaning towards that I really don't believe in this whole concept of charter schools? What do you think? I believe the charter school board does want to approve charter schools. I think that we need to have, um, in general in Mississippi, and I, I, I want this for the board as well, a philosophy of interest in education options, growing yeah. education options so that people have a choice in where to go and they get to decide what is most important to them um, in their school. So I want to see more schools getting further along in the process and uh, the board engaging with them even more meaningfully as they desire to see better education options in places where students across the state do not have them. Uh, I, I think it does take a change in educational philosophy, which we are seeing take place across the nation, interest in education, innovation, and options. Okay. Before you go, real quick, does the school district have to approve a charter no. school opening up just to authorize Just the, the authorizer board. Okay, so once that happens, they're good to go in that district. That's right. Gotcha. Appreciate you coming on, Elise. Good luck uh, with, Empark, with Embark. We want to get more charter schools out there. Thanks Thank a lot. You. We're coming right back with more. We got Fox News, Super Talk News coming up next because it's top of the hour. And after that, we've got Leah Ferretti and Allison Talley. They are education scholarship account moms. Stay with us. We're coming right back. And now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It is middays. We are live in the Element Well Studios, which have been relocated today to downtown Jackson at two Mississippi museums. That's for Empower Mississippi's third annual Unleash Mississippi event. We're talking about the three uh, major policy areas that Empower focuses on. That would be education freedom, also known as school choice, common sense criminal justice reform, and also work, which really just encompasses the myriad of economic policies that allow people to work in dignity, earn a good living, and uh, grow our economy. But joining us now is Leah Ferretti and Allison Talley. We will describe them as ESA moms. ESA, of course, stands for Education Scholarship Account. Leah, Allison, thanks for joining Middays. Good to see y'all. Thank you. you. Good to see you as well. All right, so Allison, uh, I know some about Leah, known her for a while, and and, uh, she's been a great advocate and spokesperson for education choice and Empower in particular. Tell us about your background and your your, um, connection to education uh, scholarship accounts. I will be glad to. I live here in Jackson. I've been here my whole life, and I have a 16-year-old who has Down syndrome. And when she was about in the third grade, about 2000, 15, when this program um, was first introduced, um, my college roommate, um, one of my best friends, was actually working at the legislature, and she still does. 
And uh, she kind of, when she found out about it, and she knew how important education is to me personally. I'm from a family of educators, so it's always been on top of my agenda to make sure that you are meeting your potential through education, and you're doing everything you, you can to, be, to constantly be learning. So she kept me in on this, and we were able to get in really, really early. And I keep telling people, I think we were one of the first families because I had so much knowledge going mm-hmm. into it. And then uh, five, three years ago, after the five year, we got really, really active through Empower to get this thing re re-upped because it was so successful for me and for our family and for the other families um, that, that we knew that were in it as well. And it was important to make sure people knew about it, knew how to get it, knew how to how to prepare for it because there is some prep. You can't just say the day before the deadline that I want to be on it. Mm-hmm. You have to know what to do. So educating people, other families um, was very important and we just got uh, this this school year, we're back on it again. So we have been on it constantly the whole time since 2015. And it's been very important to us because we are in a private school. And uh, private school is expensive. I think you both know that. Yep. And um, to defray those costs is incredibly important to our family to be able to give her that education that is customized for her, a small classroom, with a teacher who has the background, who cares and um, can help get her through. She's a 10th grader and will graduate with her class with her peers in two years. So prior to that, Allison, um, was your daughter in a, a public school where they did not have the specialized instruction for um, the Down syndrome? No. she. We have always sacrificed and worked and did whatever it took to keep to get her into a school that could take care of okay. her special needs. So we've always been in private school. Okay. So this ESE, ESA has allowed us to, well, for one, to do things like this. Yeah. I can come in and talk. Sure. Um, and my husband as well. It's taken a big burden off of us. And like I said, it's only a dent in tuition. Yeah. Right, and that's the point we made in uh, earlier in the program that uh, the the amount that's allocated is equal to the amount that's going to the public school right. in your district. It's not that it is covering the entire cost exactly. of the tuition and, in a setting where you do get the proper instruction. But there, as you know, Leah, there are a lot of districts that uh, don't have these spe- the specialized instruction, um, special needs teachers, and so mm-hmm. forth. I think it's actually what they call them, and so. Uh, parents are kind of locked into those schools and those districts, and their and their child is not getting the customized, the tailored education. Yes, and, you know, and you know, talking about defraying this, the cost of private school, um, you're also defraying the cost of private therapies. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, um, especially for learning disabilities, insurance doesn't cover um, the therapies that that children need, especially for dyslexia, um, and. The, the ESA defrays that cost. It cuts down. It helps families, you know, just kind of lighten it up on their on their backs a little bit. Yeah. Um, I know, you know, we have we have three dyslexic children, and two out of our three um, were eligible for ESA. You know, unfortunately, my third one, uh, we, we were already in a private school, so she did not qualify because she did not meet that stipulation of having an IEP. Um, and I had already learned, you know, through the other two by trial and error, you know what, we're not going to do that with you, sister. So, um, you know, we did what we could to keep her in private school and have those private therapies and you know we're very fortunate that we were able to do that because of the esa Mm -hmm. um and in that season in life and that's what we needed um now you know we have been in private school we've done private therapies and we have just moved to madison where we are in madison county schools now and um you know not everyone can up and move like that you know Um, we've been working you know the past 
10 years to try to, to get to a better public school. And, and here we are. And we're very fortunate and we're extremely happy because Madison does have the resources. Right. Not every school district has those resources to meet the needs of every student. And that's that's essentially the at, at the heart of the idea and the concept is is to help the the student find the setting that uh, can can deal with their specialized situation. All schools don't have that. They don't have all those assets. They don't have all those resources. And if it means that the student needs to attend a different school for that purpose, and sometimes that's a private school, well, then they, they can at least get uh, some of that cost covered by just having the money that's already allocated to them by the state government to the uh, the school to which they are assigned based on their, their residence, their address. It just essentially stays with them yes. and follows them to the best setting. That's yes, the and, idea. Yeah, and you know, and Allison knows, explaining to parents and other people how this works is the accountability is on the parents. So we pay out of pocket right. for all these expenses and we have to submit quarterly reports to be reimbursed for that for that small amount of money that we have paid out of pocket. Right. Um, and, and that money is already allocated to our children um, and, and we're not really you know getting the full amount that we need to be able to help our child. Uh, so I think that there's a lot of misconceptions out there, you know, especially during election year, you know, it, that that's already my child's money. You yeah. know, that's not the school district's money. That is the money on my child. And there's so many, um, I guess, like restrictions and, and, and policy that you have to follow up with because you, you can't just go spend this money willy nilly. Yeah. Um, it goes, to, has to go to tuition. It has to go to therapies, um, anything dealing with that. And, and they, they audit us every quarter. Right. So it's not like mm-hmm. we can just go, you know, go go on a vacation with this money. And Mississippi has a similar program, ESAs, for uh, dyslexia. Yes. Uh, that right. that um, is, is a big problem. Right. And it uh, can certainly hinder a child's education and progress through the educational process. And in the same situation, all schools don't have the assets, the resources, the specialized instruction to deal with dyslexia. And so what this scholarship allows them to do is, uh, again, the money follows them to the setting where they can help them with that. Instead of just letting them die on the vine Which and, is what and not getting in the classroom. it. Yeah. Well, and the teachers the- will tell you that. They just almost have to ignore it so they can keep everybody else yep. um, on track. Well, and I'll, and I'll also say you're talking about therapies, and you know, my, our biggest problem is communication. With Down syndrome, one of the d- delays is speech and language. And um, people are now, with the rising cost of health care, people are having to make decisions on do I get speech therapy or... <laughs> Or, you know, right. it's, it's a terrible, or pay gas. I mean, you know, the triple prices that we're seeing now. And, you know, we were talking about in Madison schools, and I'm really so happy you're here to have a, another mom friend here to, you know, talk to. Yeah. Um, you know, that was not, a, and we love the Madison. We're in the Madison School District, but I could not even sleep at night thinking with a classroom that size with a child that can't tell me what happened during the day yeah. when I, when she gets home at night. Um, you know, mothers should not have to make that decision. Do I just risk it and hope and hope nothing happens? And we, understanding is, that each of our chil- our children have needs and they're different mm-hmm. needs. Every child. So different. you know, just because this setting works for your child, it may not work for mine. Yeah. So a couple of minutes left. Uh, Leah, I know you have uh, been involved with the program uh, for some time, and again, you've been a strong advocate for it. When we have the big school choice day at, uh, at the Capitol, and we get, we get to meet so many of the, the families that have enjoyed charter schools and the education scholarship accounts, w- what do you hear real quick? 
nothing but happiness. Like they're I mean, 100% happiness and, and grateful and thankful that our state, ha- we have some option, but we need more options. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Allison? Um, the same thing. Um, I, you know, we've been at the bottom of so many lists, and I'm, I've been here my whole life, and I've seen us the number 29, 39, 49, 51, yeah. even, you know, some of the outliers. Sure. Just to be on the cutting edge of this has made me very proud, and it's it's something. And, and I see people in my in my business move to Mississippi, and I can't wait to tell them this is one of the reasons you should move here because we are on the rise with this. And, um, you know, and we'll talk about it, I'm sure, in a little bit, but I, I want this to, you know, I'm not going to be happy until everybody has a chance yeah, to be on this. Absolutely. I'll just add this to the discussion just having personally attended and, and, and seen you there as well at uh, at the big school choice rallies. I've had mothers that have hugged my neck and cried. Oh yeah. I've been like it just it, it, happiness. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And it's I mean it's so rewarding. That's why we do this. That's what it's all about. Uh, we appreciate it, ladies, for, for coming on and talking to us about the value of education scholarship accounts. We've gotten a lot done, we got a lot more to do. Thanks a lot. Thank, Thank you, Gerard. Appreciate Thank it. You. We're coming right back with more. We got an open segment and then Jerron Smith, senior fellow, right on crime, joins us at eleven thirty five. Middays with Gerard. What? What? This is so awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's Middays. The Element Well Studios relocated to two Mississippi museums. And by the way, folks, while we're at two Mississippi museums, if you hadn't been here, you're missing out on a super treat. You need to take the tour and visit the Mississippi Museum of History and the Civil Rights Museum. They are so well done. I mean world-class facilities and exhibits. And you will be impressed and you will learn a lot, and you'll enjoy it. No doubt about it. Once again, we're in the Element Well studio. Are you thinking about or planning for retirement? Do you have a plan? Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. Well, we got some economic news this morning. The producer price index came in hotter than expected. That index, of course, measures the cost of inputs to the production process. It would be considered a leading indicator, meaning that it is uh, really telling us that inflation is stubborn. And we're likely to see a tick up in the CPI and the PCE. Those are both measurements of inflation at the retail level. We're likely to see that rise in the next reports toward the end of the month simply because producers are reporting that the cost of inputs, the cost of inputs is rising. Uh, the other thing that's uh, worth Sharing with you is that the price of oil eclipsed the, the $90 a barrel mark this morning. 
Saw that four came in. I have been predicting for some time we're headed back to a hundred dollars a barrel. That too is a leading indicator. Expect the price at the pump to rise soon. And, and of course, something that the federal government seems to be a bit oblivious about. And that is when the price of oil rises, the price of fuel and energy follows. And that, of course, is a, is a critical input to the production process of food and the staples of life, things we all got to have. And food and energy are, are at the top of that list, housing as well. And this is going to drive those prices up. And once again, it's because we've got competing policies from the Fed, the, the Federal Reserve, who oversees monetary policy that primarily involves interest rates the benchmark interest rate level and then you got the federal government who's just bound and determined to get us uh, to stop using fossil fuels anything they can do to curb the supply of fossil fuels the consumption and use of fossil fuels they're all over that they put that above your pocketbook if if the cost of that is simply that your food costs more, your clothes cost more, your housing, your your gas in your car, so be it. They're cool with that because you know the climate is going to blow the plot the planet up here pretty soon. We've heard uh, the fear mongering for years, and when that happens, we ain't gonna have no more planet. So that's more important to those who are making those policies. But you got the Fed trying to drive inflation down with higher interest rates, and you've got the federal government who is bound and determined to uh, suppress the use of oil, and in doing so, that's causing in, that's causing um, the cost of everything we buy to rise and they're competing with each other so that's a problem um on the ceasefire tax line Rhett in ridgeland says that education choice would induce poorly performing districts to implement successful systems and there's no doubt that that's a big part of the the goal of education choice uh Rhett, you're absolutely right it's it's not to essentially replace the public school system not whatsoever uh, we believe, and education choice advocates believe, in an all-the-above strategy, just like energy. Unlike the federal government, who's just bound and determined to replace fossil fuels like right now today with um, with so-called renewable sources and wants everybody driving EVs, even though that's not even remotely practical, it's the same deal. That's what they want. And, and that's the same thing with education choice. What we really seek is an all-the-above strategy. We, we believe in, in public schools, private schools, charter schools, home schools, multiple education settings and delivery systems. We just want people to have that choice and to have at their disposal the money the state allocates to their public education to be used in the way that they see is best fit for their student, for their student child. That's really what it's all about. Of course there are practical limitations on you can't just transfer everybody out of an F district to the neighboring A district and just leave the F district with no students and the A district is overwhelmed with too many. No, and that's not the way it would work when it's practically implemented. There, there would be uh, a lot of thought put into the structure of that legislation, just as it has been done in 
Florida and Arizona and Iowa and Arkansas, all of which are enjoying success from those policies. So that's the good news. We've got lots of templates, lots of models that have been successful to rely on to implement those uh, those systems in the state of Mississippi. And, and we hope to get more done along that front in the next session at a minimum, certainly in the next term. We've made some progress. We've got a lot more to do. Uh, so I know there's some concern that, uh, on the ceasefire tax line. The people with the means to do school choice in Mississippi already do. It's actually that's actually a limited small fraction of the population of Mississippi. And does this mean that we only care about the people with means? And that's that's the whole point of school choice is to help those that 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 don't have. Uh, the, the personal assets to just say, hey, look, I'm going to pay my taxes to fund the public schools, even though I'm not going to send my kids there, but I'm going to enroll my kids and, and fund tuition in private schools. Well, you're right. Those, those people do have a choice. Or perhaps they just want to pick up and move to a better performing district in a public school environment. Yeah, and they have the means to, to move, to, to just change jobs and, and, um, and, and pick up their households. Yeah, absolutely. But what school choice does is by allowing the families to use the money that is essentially allocated to them, to the public school in, in, uh, in, their, in their district, uh, they can use that money for the setting that makes the most sense. Now, in a lot of cases, they may not be able to, to travel to uh, a better school. And the, and the better school that's close by may be full and can't handle the capacity. That's absolutely true. But maybe just by having this environment in place, the, the failing school will be, just become more active in, and apply more effort in improving the overall quality of their school. That's what it's all about. So it's, it's just competition to some extent, but it's not competition that is intended uh, to displace or replace the public school. That's not the idea. Um, let's see something else that came up on the ceasefire text line there is a really not a house for sale in our town weston that is on the school boundary line if i bought this home my children would be required to go to hazelhurst schools which is 12 miles away instead of going to weston which is five miles away my husband and i both work in weston and my children have always been in weston if i had school choice i could buy this wonderful home and not uproot my children we want school choice within reason it shouldn't be a free-for-all but there should be reason Reasonable accommodations. I wish I was smart enough to solve this problem. Kim, absolutely, Kim, spot on, perfectly said. And and that's just one of the myriad of examples where school choice could be of value. That's just absolutely um, just a great example of the the um, uh, the goal and uh, the benefit of school choice options. It doesn't fit every single situation. But that's why it's optional. That's why it's called an option. We just want to make more options available to more people. That's really what school choice is all about. And I appreciate you sending that in, Kim. It's just a great um, example. Why wouldn't, let's see, why wouldn't the money follow the Social Security number? Well, 
I mean, you could you could make the Social Security number any unique ID. This is on the ceasefire tax line. But the idea is 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 that schools get money from the state based on their student population, and and when the enroll it's based on enrollment. There's a you familiar with the MAEP formula? It's relatively complex. But all school choice does it says, hey, look, if the student elects a different school setting. Maybe it's private school, maybe it's home school, maybe it's charter school, maybe it is um, another public school, should the other public school be willing. In all these situations, you have to apply and be accepted. But then the money would follow the child. That's the idea. The money follows the child to um, their education setting. That's really what it's all about. We're stepping aside for a break right here. When we come back, we've got... Let's see, we've got Jerron Smith, senior fellow, right on crime. Stay with us. We ought to take it easy. Mississippi. Man. It's time for Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's Middays. We are in the Element Well studio today at two Mississippi museums for Empower Mississippi's third annual Unleash Mississippi event. And we welcome to the program now Jerron Smith, Senior Fellow with Right on Crime. Jerron, good to see you. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Gerard. And thanks for being in Mississippi. So uh, tell us about the Right on Crime organization. What do you advocate for? Sure. So Right on Crime is uh, um, part of the Texas Public Policy Fund. Foundation, a think tank dedicated to conservative principles. Um, right on Crime truthfully focuses on uh, creating more smart on crime policies, which have a focus around public safety first. Um, if we're going to reform our justice system, the first thing we should pay attention to is doing no harm. Um, we want to create a safer environment, um, but also create, create a fairer justice system. Yeah. Makes total sense. So how are we doing in Mississippi specifically? Of course, you're here today. I think you're going to be one of our panelists later yes. on the program, right, um, when we talk about uh, justice. Uh, we've made some progress in Mississippi. I think we got a ways to go. Uh, how, how do we stand relative to, say, Texas and some of the other states, in your view? Sure. You know, we're in an interesting environment um, post-pandemic um, when you've seen uh, in, in major metropolitans a push um, by the left to defund the police, which is demoralize police departments, and do um, policy reforms that don't always protect public safety. And so what we've been championing is uh, um, reforming our system in a way that's going to keep the community safe but allow for opportunity um, a good example of that um, prior to joining right on crime i was a uh, deputy assistant to uh, for domestic policy to president trump and uh, i was the lead negotiator um, for his reform effort called the first step Act. yeah but the first step Act focused on um, reducing recidivism reducing people's uh, probability of returning to prison and we were very successful at doing that we, re- we lowered recidivism rates from 40 percent um, down to 12 percent 
And so that's less crime that law enforcement has to work about. That's how we have to look at justice reform. You know, um, we want to reform prisons in a way that's going to uh, make sure people don't do crime again um, and create safer communities. And, and that's a North Star. And that's some of the things that we're trying to push at right on crime, similar policies like that. You know, it's no secret, uh, Jerron, we, we're seeing a crime wave, honestly, across the country and in particular in many of America's really large uh, cities. And we're, we're seeing retailers complain about that of course all the smashing grabs we're seeing the citizens of the cities we've even got the city of san francisco where i think the federal government has offices in downtown san francisco and told its staff don't come to work stay at home because of their fear of the safety uh, risk in downtown san francisco i think one of the one of the challenges of course to, to getting common sense criminal justice reforms implemented and get the public to support it is that they often see that and confuse that with what's going on in many of these cities where they're just not prosecuting true crime that's exactly right and and like i said earlier um you also have city councils that are creating a more a bigger magnet for crime as they're not um they're passing laws that's not holding criminals accountable right um and then calling that criminal justice reform (laughs) that's not the way that should reform the system. Um, we also need to um, ensure that we have a police department that's um, prepared to act if they need to. Um, if, if the areas of the community that need to police most um, have um, created, um, their leaders have created a situation where police are afraid to go in there. That's not. That's not. That's not helping the community. Sure. I mean, eighty percent of low-income communities black white hispanic all of them all want more police not less um and so a combination of um not having accountability through our laws and our legislators um and not having a police force has created a powder keg in those communities and so what we've been uh suggesting and, and recommending as our, as our organization right on crime and also in my position as the chair of public safety solutions for america is that we need to fund the police. We need to have the police focus on solving violent crime and preventing violent crime. And then thirdly, we need evidence-based policies. If we know it doesn't work, let's not enact laws that may create more crime. And then lastly, like I said before, we have to continue to do smart on crime policies that put public safety first. And then the incarceration aspect of, uh, of justice as well, it, it seems like all too often – we do lock up people that haven't really hurt anyone else, haven't committed any sort of violent crime. They, they haven't, they haven't committed um, any sort of burglary or taken anybody's stuff, as I like to say. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they were just caught with simple possession of drugs, which violates our laws. Maybe they have a drug use problem, an abuse problem, and then we just lock them up. And then when we let them out, they still have that problem. That's not exactly really right. addressing that. They sometimes become um, worse criminals inside our, our justice system. Yeah. Um, and, and those are the parts we need to reform um, because 95% of individuals that go to prison, we know that they're coming home. Um, and so how are they coming home? And so um, part of the provisions of the First Step Act um, did things by looking at a person's individual criminology and then assigning um, a recidivism reduction programming to that criminology, uh, rather it was mental health uh, drug abuse or family reunification or they just needed to learn some new skills so that they can figure out um, um, a passion in life yeah. um, that would, would get them focused um, all of those things have been proven to work and, and we call those evidence-based um, policies and they reduce recidivism um, but we also are clear that there are individuals that just intend to do harm and you can't 
um, necessarily that won't do a program. Right. You know, that's not trying to change their lives. Um, and that's why we need a strong justice system for those bad apples. Yeah. Um, and, and that's the nuanced approach that Right on Crime is advocating for. And, and let's also be clear that uh, any um, sort of advocacy for common sense criminal justice reforms does not include just uh, letting people commit super violent, heinous acts of crime without punishment, without the proper punishment. And it may be that they just have to be locked up forever. I mean, it's, it's crime could rise to that level. It, yeah. So it's not about just creating a revolving door where the people just, just come in, get booked, and go out, which is what we're seeing a lot in American cities, that's not really criminal justice reform. Well, it's that's not. It's more political. Is what it is. I mean, honestly, that's that's part of the problem. You can't politicize um, reforming our justice system because if you do it in the wrong way, there's unintended consequences of um, uh, people losing their lives, yeah. you know, or someone getting hurt. Um, what what I've been advocating, I just recently wrote a book called Underserved, um, harnessing Lincoln's vision for reconstruction for today's forgotten communities. Hmm. I wrote that with a colleague, Chris Pilkerton, and I work with in the White house and the strategy that we've um advocated in that book is taking a holistic approach um we realize that some of these things don't happen in the vacuum obviously if you have a poor education system and a lack of jobs you're more likely to kind of maybe do other things like commit crime um in the same in the same um, scenario it's hard to get jobs economic development in a place that's crime ridden right so we advocate for holistic solutions looking at education looking at opportunity Looking at um, social um, um, impact programs around behavioral health, you know, um, a lot of individuals have lived in, in community for three, four generations of not having a father in the household, um, not having intact families, been around drug abuse. And so this creates um, a mentality um, that needs um, more than just what the system can offer on the behavioral health world or even churches um, trying to change the human heart. And so um, at the same time that um, the government has a role with accountability, we need to rebuild civil society and, and reimagine community um, because ultimately we're all in this together. Yeah. And and I think about just uh, the the drug abusers and how many we have in Mississippi that are just locked up for for simple possession for a fairly extended period of time. I, I don't feel like they're getting the resources they need to address that problem that got them there to start with. I know our commissioner of corrections, Burl Kane, understands this and and he advocates for that. But but what do we need to be doing there? Well, that's 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 the right way to go about it is creating infrastructure that's tapping into the churches, tapping into the nonprofits, and creating a scenario where we're not necessarily penalizing person for an abuse problem, yeah. um, but we're getting them the help they need. Um, but even in that scenario, a person has to want to change. You know, um, and it's our job just to create the right infrastructure for opportunity for those that want to change um, to help change them. Um, and, and, and in many cases, the only solution is to put someone in the jail. And that's just, we got to have more um, opportunity and more scenarios um, than just jail because right now our prisons are full. Um, law enforcement is overwhelmed. Um, and so we have to kind of look at how law enforcement can partner with social workers, partner with mental health professionals, and figure out a a better infrastructure that's going to make sure that those who fall through the cracks because of addiction get the help that they need. 
Yeah, totally, totally makes sense. Well, it's uh, it's an interesting topic. There's been a lot of momentum behind it. I think it's fair to say President Trump, whom you said you worked for, probably brought that to the forefront and got got that in focus more than any other president that I can remember, honestly. And he kind of surrounded himself with people such as yourself uh, for that effort and got uh, got the bill passed Amen. as well. So yep. appreciate you coming on, uh, Jerron, and uh, look forward to talking to you later on today. Thanks so much, Gerard. You got it. We're coming right back with Arkansas State Senator Breanne Davis. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone it's middays we are live from the element well studios at two mississippi museums in downtown jackson for empower mississippi's third annual unleash mississippi event rhino back in the super talk headquarters studios bumping us into this segment with a little mick jagger and the stones joining us now arkansas state senator brianne davis brianne thanks for coming on senator yeah thanks for having me on what brings you to mississippi in the unleash mississippi event well, I was the lead sponsor for the Learns Act in Arkansas, which was probably the most comprehensive education reform package um, in the country to date. And so I'm happy to be here and just visit with the folks here to learn more about uh, education freedom. It got tremendous national attention, uh, no doubt about it. And uh, Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders seemed to indicate, I mean, like before the ink was dry, after her inauguration on whatever they signed there to become governor, uh, went right to it and said, top priority, getting this done, and got it done through through your your legislature to the governor's desk, signed into law. Yeah, it within was, a month, right after she was inaugurated, I think somewhere. It in was there. pretty close. It was about two months, but okay. um, you know, just getting the, working through the details. But it was the the day after election when she won. Um, she was on the fight, and we were working on language and you know figuring out what other states had done that had been successful. But yeah. she promised people for two years that was her number one priority, and she delivered. Did you run into opposition? This may be a rhetorical question, but did you run into opposition from, let's just say, the public school establishment, people that had serious concerns about how this might negatively affect the public schools in Arkansas? Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of times some of those bigger groups, their default is to oppose um, and and not listen first and then uh, make suggestions or work with. Now, I will say some of those groups did um, have some members that worked hard 
to meet us and yeah. be on board and provide valuable input. But um, we tried to work with those groups. We offered to let them have input on the front end and um, kind of see what they were interested in. And it, it was a group effort. But, yeah, we certainly faced that opposition. What inspired you to personally spearhead this? You, do you have some background here or something in, in your history? Yeah, well, I, I did serve on my local school board for nine years, okay. um, you know, before coming to the state Senate. I've been in the Senate for the last five years, and um, I ran for school board. I was 25 years old. I had a one-year-old, and hmm. um, there weren't any other parents on our school board, hmm. and I thought that was an unhealthy mix. I thought we needed representation from all walks of life on our local school board, and um, since that time, I now have four kids. Three of them are in public schools. One's in preschool, and my youngest has Down syndrome, and will you know, Know, walk walk that special needs um, path through through public schools very likely um, we'll determine that I guess private or public schools but yeah. um, I think just understanding what our kids are facing in schools what our teachers are facing and knowing that um, it's a priority and it impacts generations did Arkansas have any sort of school choice in place before this bill we had public school choice in place, so you could move within, you know, district to district. And we also had something called the Succeed Scholarship, which I think um, Mississippi has something similar uh, for students with disabilities right. that meet, you know, right. 200% or below of the federal poverty level. Yep. Um, and we've seen great success with that. And so we do have a little history. Did with you it. have charter schools? Yes, we do have some charter schools as well. Did those exist? Did you have the ability to create charter schools before this legislation? Yes, okay. yes, we did. Yeah. So, so similar to what we have here, we have charter schools. We have the the education scholarship accounts for special needs for dyslexia. Sort of ends there. We do have the ability to transfer uh, between districts, but I believe both have to agree to it in Mississippi. It's the way it works. So, yeah. Um, so how how is that going to work in Arkansas? That's a question that comes up a lot. We have people here concerned about. Geez, we don't want all the people in the nearby failing district to, you know, jump over to the better district and there's just a road that separates the two. How do you deal with that? Yeah, I understand that. And and before LEARNS in Arkansas, we had a cap at 3% of your student population. So, okay. and if you applied before, you know, March or excuse me, May thirty first, or something like that. You could you could choice within that cap. Okay. Um, the Learns Act lift, lifted that cap, so now you can go to any school you choose um, if it's a, you know within public school choice. Okay. And I don't know. I think that we deserve like our kids deserve that. They deserve to go to a school that meets their educational needs and a school that they're going to learn and thrive. And yeah. so it's an important choice for them to be able to make. Yeah. But the goal, of course, and, and just to make sure folks understand about school choice, it's to do no harm. We don't want to do any harm to any public schools or any school settings at, at, in any uh, of the various uh, environments whatsoever. We want to make them all better, what we're trying to do, and give people options. Yep, that's exactly right. One thing that the Arkansas Education Secretary, Jacob Oliva, says over and over again in the town halls that he does with our governor across the state is he says, we know that even with universal school choice, that Parents, families, students will overwhelmingly continue to choose our yeah. public schools. Yeah. And we know that. Yeah. And and we addressed a lot of that in the Learns Act, just putting resources and a lot of um, a lot of money into our public schools. Makes sense. Appreciate that. Appreciate you being here, Senator. Yeah, Thanks thank a lot. You. Yeah, Thanks looking for forward to talking to you later. Arkansas Senator Brianne Davis has been our guest here at the Unleash Mississippi Empower Mississippi event. We're taking a break for Fox News and Super Talk News. Coming right back. Stay with us. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply. To think deeply. 
and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone the afternoon portion of middays is live from the element well studios set up here at two mississippi museums for empower mississippi's third annual unleash mississippi event on this friday eve <laughs> there you go. Joining us now, Senator Josh Harkins represents District 20. That's Rankin County. Serves as the chairperson of the Senate Finance Committee. That means he's the guy that's got to raise all the money to fund the government. Is that right, Senator? <laughs> that's what they say. <laughs> we appreciate you being here. Thank you so, for having me. Good yeah, to be here. Absolutely. So we have uh, we've had some good policy wins, I think, in the state of Mississippi from an economic perspective, but one in particular. Uh, that I wanted you to share your thoughts on is this uh, legislation that allows immediate expensing of capital investment uh, uh, against taxes as a deduction yeah. against uh, tax liability for, for companies, for organizations, corporations, something that exists at the federal level. It was a bit of a reconciling item at the state level. But uh, we saw fit to get something through. We did, and I don't want to steal your next guest, Thunder. Uh, oh, yeah. But that was uh, Senator something Chris he Johnson. worked on uh, really hard. But, yeah, I mean, I think it goes to kind of taking a balanced approach at, at tax policy. It's not just the personal income tax we're working on. There's also business uh, taxes that we're working on to make our environment conducive for businesses to flourish here in Mississippi. Yeah. That's ultimately, you know, our goal is to make it uh, an environment that businesses want to locate here. They want to invest in Mississippi. Mississippi, and I think this is one step that we've taken that that will help uh, help you know that come about. And and expensing is you know it's important. Uh, they they make an investment in in infrastructure and, and uh, capital expense that they're using to to you know for their business to grow, and, and uh, we're treating it as, as such that we we recognize that investment. And we want to we want uh, these businesses to to stay here, and we want them to locate here. Yeah, and we should point out it it really doesn't. It doesn't eliminate any taxes. It just delays them, delays essentially them. Yeah. what it does. So it, it, it's a tax deferral uh, system, essentially uh, what it is. And it just it's it's intended to encourage businesses to make those investments because they know they can get that write off in a year of investment, and uh, and that just kind of um, soothes the pain of spending money. <laughs> yeah, when you're you know it about helps. that when you're it helps it, yeah. it helps. So, and I mean we we in 2016 we. Uh, passed a law to eliminate the franchise tax right. another you know painful punishing taxes punishing taxes that, that's out there so <laughs> um that we also uh, passed a, a a law this year eliminating the uh sales tax on softwares and services not housed here right right which is another uh a tax on business that you know some of our local businesses were going to feel the pain of so i think what we're trying to do is have a robust uh you know look at our our economic uh, fiscal policy as it relates to taxes and, and not just you know we're working across a broad spectrum of, of issues when we're we're talking about our tax policy and sure uh, we've taken steps to hopefully uh, soften the burden on individual taxpayers by the the uh, 
tax cut we passed two years ago. Uh, this will be the elimination of the 4% bracket this fiscal year. In the next three years, we'll take that uh, 5% tax rate down to 4%, I think the fifth lowest in the country, right. uh, assuming uh, other states pause and, and don't take any other steps on their part. But uh, <laughs> some states are. Uh, yeah. I was just at a conference, and another state was talking about their uh, tax rate. They were taking it down to 5%. So I felt okay. like <laughs> we're, okay. we're a step ahead. But uh, it is a it is a, a not a race, but it is an effort that a lot of states are looking at their tax policy and trying to be as uh, is, is inviting as, as possible. Uh, a little competition going on, absolutely, in the red states to, to enact uh, really tax reform that that uh, just eases the burden yeah. on the taxpayers. And, and conversely, I had uh, a colleague in a, in a northern state that uh, says that they, they blew through an $18 billion surplus and they are looking at raising taxes. Yeah, going the other way. And uh, to me, it's just uh, un- unfathomable that you would you would put your, your citizens and your businesses in that position. And uh, it just, it's almost, it's inviting the exodus uh, that some uh, blue states are seeing with uh, businesses leaving, looking for states where uh, the economic climate is more conducive. Crazy. So you bought, uh, you brought with you the revenue reports from the Legislative Budget Office. It's something that uh, I receive via email as well. And every now and then I'll ask a couple of questions of the folks down there at the LBO, and they're always very good about responding. But uh, tell us how we did. Well, you know, last fiscal year we we had a revenue estimate about six point nine eight billion dollars, and we wound up collecting about seven point six nine billion. Yeah. So, uh, and. Our budgeting process, we stayed pretty conservative on what we budgeted, and we wound up budgeting probably $600 million underneath what our estimate was. So we had some room in there, and uh, we're going to wind up having about a billion, a little over a billion, too, uh, going to the CapEx fund with uh, our rainy day fund flush at $635 million. So we're sitting in a, in a really good spot. This fiscal uh, year started in July. Um, we're two months in. This past month, I think we're about $3 million under our revenue estimate for the month. Month, uh, but the prior month we were over forty-five, so we're forty-two million above uh, into this fiscal year, and I think yeah. we had an estimate around seven point five billion dollars for our revenue estimate. Okay, so you know the governor and, and many others uh, in the legislature, of course, advocate for full elimination of the income tax, and they'll point to this and say, "Hey, look, we, we seem to be seeing structural progress here, in that we're we've, we're consistently generating surpluses." What are your thoughts about that? I know you've had some some concerns about just full elimination. Yeah, I I think how we do it matters. And I think, uh, obviously, we have been put in a position where we have experienced uh, a lot of... uh, I don't know, some people call it sugar from the federal government that, that has been <laughs> no pumped doubt. into the state. Uh, I think it was over $33 billion over and above what the normal federal uh, participation is in our state budget. And of that $33 billion, about $13 billion went to individuals directly through wow. PPP, EIDL, disaster assistance, unemployment compensation. So that's a lot of cash in the hands of individuals, not to mention the extra billions of dollars that cities, counties, uh, the state uh Received and they were pushing it through. And agencies uh, received a lot of money: Department of Health, Department of Education, um, Employment Security. There was a lot of agencies that had a lot of money. So, um, 
I don't think, I mean, you can look at the historical 10-year collections and and tell that we had an anomaly. (laughs) No, Uh, I see the chart. And you can't make. Straight up, left or right. Absolutely. And it it looks like you're getting ready to climb Mount Everest. It's not a a normal economy. I think it's something that we just need to be measured in our approach and not uh, take a bigger bite than we can stand to chew. And and I think this is an aggressive, I mean, in 2016, we had a 10-year implementation on on a tax cut that was about $300 million. Dollars. Yeah. This tax cut's a five hundred and twenty-five million dollar one, and we've done it in four. We're doing it in four years. So it's something that I think we're we're taking a, 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 a sincere look, and we're cutting other taxes as well. That's what you, you know. We got to remember that it's not just personal income taxes that are, are being uh, moved around and, and, and adjusted. It's it's the corporate side. It's uh, business uh, taxes. It's you know we need to have a robust economy in our state and uh, jobs available for our citizens. And you know you can't. Uh, you can't leave them out of the equation altogether. So I think we're we're trying to take a, a holistic view at everything and, and really, uh, you know, make sound decisions based on economic data that we have. And and I think you know right now we're just kind of in an anomaly right now with all this money that's been pumped in because it's not coming back again next year right. or the year after. But I think it, it's a good trend. I think we can also. You know, say that we're we're taking care of the, the things that we're supposed to be taking care of. We've made uh, you know education uh, a big priority with the teacher pay raise we've done. So we're we're taking steps in in fulfilling our obligation of taking care of the the responsibilities the government's supposed to do, and trying to give back to the citizens uh, as much as we can without overextending ourselves. Yeah, I can't let you get out of here without at least uh, sharing your thoughts on PERS. Something I, you and I've talked about. I've talked about in the program. Yeah. And, many times i mean this problem's not going away didn't get a lot of attention in an election year as you would expect but we're, no. we're going to have to do something yeah i mean i think we we look at it every year we meet uh meet with uh, executive director uh, higgins and we go over a lot of the issues that they're they're talking about and every year i guess starting uh right before covid we've we've talked about you know the, the funding ratio and how the performance occurs and you know the 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 response I get is kind of interesting that, you know, oh, by 2045, we'll be at a certain level. And, hmm. you know, I've always kind of wondered, you know, obviously the, the gist of that is is that the, the, the people that are currently on the system in the first tiers uh, will no longer be in the system, you know, by 2045, 2050, 2060, as you go on. And the, and the fund is cheaper to run at uh, those outlying years. Mm-hmm. But to well, me – the more recent tiers. You yeah, yeah, the recent tiers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so – you know, I understand that, but I think at the end of the day, we we look at the the what is due right now, what is our unfunded liability, yeah. and and what's the what's the status of the of the pension fund itself, and it it's kind of troubling to see what uh, where we are right now. Yeah. And obviously, with the latest move of raising uh, the employer contribution five percent, that's going to be that's going to hit a lot of. A lot of folks, a lot of different areas. Wasn't, uh, wasn't popular with a lot of municipalities, and no, <laughs> they don't uh, get it's not money be from the popular state. with the municipalities, the counties, the yeah. uh, schools. Uh, yeah. It's a lot of them. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll be talking about that some more. Appreciate you being here. Yeah. Today, thank you for Senator. having me. Thank you so much, Senator Josh Harkins has been our guest. When we return, it's Senator Chris Johnson represents Forest and Perry counties, serves as the Constitution Chair and Finance Vice Chair. Coming right back. Covering the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk Mississippi. 
Talk Mississippi. We're down at two Mississippi museums today for Unleash Mississippi's third annual, uh, pardon me, Empower Mississippi's third annual Unleash Mississippi event. It's now Senator Chris Johnson represents District 45 that includes Forest and Perry counties and serves as the Constitution Chair and also the Finance Vice Chair. I got the sound up here. We get it. You got us? No, sir. All right. Houston? We might have to switch the senator over to this side. I got it all up there. We get it? Oh, just a second, folks. Sorry about that. That's it. All right. All right. Great. So, all right. Senator, thanks for coming on today, and uh, appreciate you being here at the uh, Unleash Mississippi event, the third annual. And, of course, you're familiar with the three major advocacy areas that Empower uh, works on, and one of those is the category we call work, which includes economic policy. And uh, one of those key policies that you are instrumental in getting uh, through the legislature signed by our, our governor was the immediate expensing of business capital investment. Can you explain uh, uh, what that is exactly for the audience, for the, to those who who uh, maybe don't spend a, lime, a lot of time, I should say, uh, preparing tax returns and having to deal with all that wonky stuff? Sure. Well, thank you very much for having me on today. And, uh, yes, we... Lieutenant Governor Hoseman has worked hard on uh, workforce development and economic development in the, over the last four years, and um, and he saw the benefit in this right away. It's uh, it's fortunately one of the most simple tax uh, changes we've made because it doesn't necessarily ne- have a negative effect on state budget, but it allows businesses to take a full expensing of items they would otherwise have to depreciate for up to 20 years. Uh, they'd be able to take that in the f- first year. Uh, that would prevent them from doing it in future years, but that can be a, a big incentive to grow your business. Um, it can make a difference in hiring a new employee, and so and it doesn't have a long-term negative effect on the state. So one of the most simple bills, and it, it affects all businesses down to poultry farmers, uh, anybody who is investing in their business, sole proprietors, corporations. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the Empower Mississippi team, were were they working with you to some extent, some degree on this as well? They were, yes, sir. Uh, they they um, they had been looking at what some other states had looked at and uh, gave some great policy ideas on on uh, wording that we can put in uh, to make it most effective. And, uh, and so I worked closely with Empower on that. And in the past, this has been what we call um, in the accounting world a reconciling item between federal and state tax returns and that the provision was available for federal tax purposes but not for state. And so you took that deduction on your federal return. You'd have to then add it back on your state return to make it, to, to be compliant with state law. That's right. And we oftentimes try to mirror federal law sure. to simplify that part of taxes. But in this case, it had not been done. And, and now uh, doing this, hopefully we can make it permanent in Mississippi. And, and uh, I believe the federal government may phase it out. And we hope that they make it permanent as well. Totally agree. And it is being phased out right now. It was, it was a major provision of the tax cuts and Jobs Act signed into law by President Trump in 2017. Unfortunately, it does have uh, some phase-out provisions, and that's just to keep it uh, with within the rules so that it could pass with a simple majority in the Senate. 
and and that's being phased out as are the individual provisions of that law as well uh, after 2025 we would revert back unless the congress takes action to uh, the tax laws in effect before that which is going to turn everything upside down uh, once again, it seems like. Yes, and, and <laughs> looking at where our economy may be in a year, um, we, we hope that they make some changes that would promote growth in the totally economy. Totally agree. Totally agree. Uh, so what, what's on the horizon in the next uh, session or perhaps even in the next term uh, from a finance perspective? <laughs> yes. Well, I think um, I think the loaded gun that we're looking at is PERS right now. And, Just talking and, to the senator about that. Yes. I agree. Yeah, <laughs> senator, senator Harkins, yeah. Uh, I don't. I don't see any way that we cannot address uh, PERS. Uh, we see new numbers coming out every day. Uh, we talk about it at a state level. I think uh, every percentage point that the employee employer share goes up, it costs the state maybe fifty-three million dollars. Um, but then it also costs local governments, uh, including um, not only cities, counties, and then also our colleges and universities. Yeah. So in Hattiesburg, uh, every percentage point that the employer portion goes up. It will cost three hundred thousand dollars. So this two percent we're looking at is six hundred thousand dollars. Well, that's ten or twelve jobs uh, that that we could otherwise have. Yeah, we uh, we spoke to uh, Hattiesburg Mayor Toby Barker, who's now the president of the Mississippi Municipal League. That was a couple of weeks ago, and uh, he, of course, expressed uh, serious concerns about the fact that now the employer rate is scheduled to increase. Initially, I believe it was scheduled to increase by five percentage points all at once july well actually it was in october then they then they delayed it to july next year and now it's being phased in over three years i believe right two two one if i'm not mistaken i believe that's right but then with the down uh with the decrease in the expected return we could see that continue on though i think a lot of people are predicting we end up at 27 percent and currently we're at 17 percent yeah so let's let's just make sure our audience knows about that so we we have kind of a stated goal of return on the investment portfolio at pers to to produce income and just grow the assets to cover future benefits and existing benefits from the income perspective, we lowered that from a 7.5% target to 7 Yes, sir. Right? So essentially, uh, we're basically saying that um, we're allowing the, uh, the portfolio to manage in that way. To some extent, that's because we're looking at needing to invest in less risky assets. Uh, which is is guards against future future problems and interruptions, but produces less return. Uh, that's right, which has a long term effect. I mean, we see uh, the changes that are primarily causing problems with the retirement system now started in the late nineties, early two thousands. So we see over the course of roughly twenty years how big that gap is spread. And so you change a percentage point now, it doesn't seem like much, but over time it adds up. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And 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 just to be clear, uh, I've talked about it a lot on the show, and I think I, I uh, accurately represent the sentiments of our state leaders, our legislature. Nobody wants to change the benefits that are currently in place going out to people right now. I mean, uh, that, is that right? Is that's that absolutely correct. We we have a responsibility to keep that. I mean, people plan their lives based on that retirement, so we we have to put that first, yeah, and then find a way to salvage taxing, raising taxes, right. or, or, or converting current uh, appropriations to PERS and neglecting other parts of the state. Right. And and so, as, as, as I understand it, Senator, the legislature can only increase the employee contribution rate. The PERS board has control over the employer. Is that correct? That is my understanding. I, I believe you're right on yeah. that. 
Yeah, and the board uh, did just that, increase the employer rate. That's how we got the 5%. Uh, the employees are already paying, what, 9 9%. 9%, 9% is what I thought. And so. I think when it started, they were at 2 and the state was maybe, the employer part was 4 or 5%, so it's continuously gone up. And Once uh, fully implemented, will be north of 31% between employer and employee contributions into the PERS for every dollar of, of payroll. That's right, and, and one of the unfortunate things about that is that when we try to hire people in the state, the cost to the state compared to what the take-home pay is, people are taking home roughly half. Yeah. Um, and, and it's going to go down from there from the cost of the state. What about uh, insurance, uh, health insurance uh, specifically? I've, I've heard lots of state employees express their concerns about the rise in, in their part of health insurance premiums. What do you hear in, uh, coming in the, the next year? So. I've heard this as well. I have not dug into the details on that, and, and I believe we're going to have uh, some uh, upcoming health care sessions, uh, uh, hearings yeah. in the Senate. And so I hope to get more information on that. But I've heard the same thing, and I don't know what those potential solutions are as of yet. Okay. Well, and, and you're right. Health care, the, the, the issue of health care in general is, is a big one. And uh, I just saw yesterday that Greenwood LaFleur Hospital, which is in, really in, in uh, very challenging financial condition, was initially denied their critical access status, something they applied for, which would um, increase their reimbursements from federal programs of Medicare Medicaid, they were denied that, and so that's a serious concern. Of course, they're appealing that, and there's another kind of leg in that process. But we've got a lot of hospitals in the state that are struggling. We do, and it's not just a Mississippi problem. I think it's across Absolutely the nation. Absolutely true. Yes. And, and I think that we face a, a major health care crisis in many areas, rural hospitals being one of those. Um, but unfortunately, I think the federal government owns this, and, and there's... Less and less we can do at the state level to remedy that. I agree. Um, and that's a great point is that there's kind of a limit on what state government can do to address this problem. I sort of feel like we need to get a lot of smart people in a room that represent the, all the factions and all the disciplines and try to just come up with some potential solutions there. And look at all the options. I totally agree. Totally agree. Senator, appreciate you coming on. Thanks uh, Thanks for your work on the immediate expensing bill. I think it's a big, uh, big win for the state of Mississippi. Thank you, sir. Well, thank you. Appreciate you being here. We're coming right back with more. We've got Robert Enlow, President and CEO of Ed Choice, coming up next. Stay with us. With Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk, Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's midday. Super Talk Mississippi, the great Tom Petty bumping us into this segment. We are in downtown Jackson at two Mississippi museums for Empower Mississippi's third annual Unleash 
Mississippi Policy Summit. We welcome to the program now Robert Enlow, President and CEO of Ed Choice. Robert, thanks for coming on. Thanks, thanks for, for being here. Thanks for having me, and thanks for share, sharing Tom Petty with me to start. <laughs> there you that. go. That's, That's Rhino back at the headquarters. He takes care of us, man. Um, we are so excited to have you here, and and uh, very excited, of course, about the big Unleash Mississippi event, the third annual. I expect this one to be bigger than the prior two. We're getting a lot of attention. This organization, um, I, I've been with it, as you're probably aware, since its inception. I have been honored and pleased to serve as the board chairman. And we have con- come uh, from having to educate people about who we are and what we stand for to everybody knows who we are now. <laughs> so that that's, that's what we want. And I think we're on the right side of policy education choice education freedom is top of that list and honestly as you know it was the catalyst uh, for formation of this uh, this organization something you have a lot of passion about you've been working on a long time you got to be pleased with the interest in education choice and the momentum in this country uh, the momentum is just going through the roof right now and and we're so proud to be here and so proud to have been partnering with empower mississippi frankly since your founding yeah right that's so right we were, we were one of your first supporters Yes. Are so, ha- so happy to have been doing that. You know, the choice movement has grown so much in the last decade. I don't know if you know this. This year, there were 111 bills in 47, 40 states this year that were wow. introduced for vouchers, education savings accounts, and tax credits. 79% of them were for education savings accounts. We now have nine states and soon to be ten that have every child eligible to get choice. Universal choice. That's nearly universal. Universal. That's nearly one in five students now in America have access to universal choice. Because we ha- we have, as you are aware, we have some degree of, of school choice with uh, with charter schools, the education um, scholarship accounts for dyslexia and special needs. But we don't. We haven't quite crossed the bridge uh, into universal school choice. Such as what has been implemented in Arkansas, in Iowa, Arizona, Florida. I'm sure there are a few more. We understand Alabama is close to getting this done as well. Alabama is working on West Virginia, Ohio, Indiana, Utah. Right. So there are these states out there that are saying we believe all dollars should follow all kids to whatever learning opportunity they want to go to. And, and I think what's, what you, why Empower Mississippi is doing such a great job is because your policy is on the side of parents. And that's what universal choice is about. Okay. And, and Pennsylvania. We got crazy close there in a, in a somewhat blue state, right? Yeah, no, we had a governor, a Democrat governor, saying he wants to support the Lifeline scholarship account. So we're, there is progress all over New Hampshire. Uh, we, we think maybe even Texas might actually get something in a special session. So the movement is growing leaps and bounds in the last three years. And look, it was always there, but the pandemic supercharged it. Yeah, I no doubt. Pandemic just supercharged it. Well, and, and to that point, uh, Robert, could you ever imagine that there would be so much attention placed on school board meetings and proceedings? You, it's, that's not something you think about beyond your sort of local world there, but good grief since the pandemic when parents got wind of what's actually going on in their classrooms that they didn't think was appropriate in many cases or really wasn't the the education they expected their children to be given uh, they started speaking up and attending school board meetings i think we could argue that governor glenn youngkin got elected in the blue state of virginia expressly because of that issue yeah there's no doubt about that and look whether you're on whether you're a parent saying hey i don't like what the school is teaching about this issue 
issue or I don't like about that issue. It doesn't matter. The parents during the pandemic got a hook under the hood and said, what are they teaching my kids and how are they doing it? And they said, enough of this. And they're starting to take charge. And that's what's so good about what's going on right now. And I don't see why Mississippi doesn't join the ranks next year. Well, we, we hope to. And, and I have been talking about it on the program today that uh, I think a lot of the obstacle in Mississippi is uh, stems from the lack of understanding and just misunderstanding, misconceptions. It, it, and there's this perception by opponents of school choice that you're just trying to get rid of the public schools. You're trying to hurt the public schools. You're trying to take money away from the public schools. It's not the truth. No, it's not the truth at all. And, you know, I've been doing this work now for 27 years, and I have had the same arguments thrown at me for 27 years, and not a single one of them have proven true over time. Oh, it's going to take money from public schools. Actually, it saves them money based on all of our data. The data we have in Mississippi shows that even these small, tiny programs have saved the state upwards of $11 million. Wow. Right? So, these, and there's only a thousand kids in these programs. So, the reality is the data always shows that school choice works and doesn't harm traditional public schools. But then, philosophically, there's a big point to make here, I think. Um, do you know who the largest drainer of other public school funds are? Other public schools where I, people I, move. I believe that, yeah. Right? When you move from one district to another, your funds follow you. It's called a per-pupil per funding unit. So all we're wanting is that just to go to any school type. Makes total sense. So uh, how do we address the issue that we have here, your thoughts on this in Mississippi, where we often have, and I know it's not unique to Mississippi, you've got a really high-performing district that's adjacent to a very low-performing district, and the concern that the, that the parents have in the high-performing district is that with universal school choice, we just have this exodus from the the poor performing and an influx into the high performing, and that would overrun it. Yeah, so evidence shows that that doesn't happen, first of all. But second of all, we would want kids to be able to access higher quality education. Are we saying that we think they should stay in the low-quality schools? No. My answer is we should provide as many options as we can for those families. One of the interesting things in my home state of Indiana is we allow universal public school choice. And because we fund kids at different rates in different districts, so the urban kids get a lot more money than the suburban kids or the rural kids. Right. And so the largest choice program in Indiana is the public-to-public transfer program of kids in urban areas being sought after by kids in rural areas, by school that? districts in rural and suburban areas. And they come get they come into the busing. Like in Muncie, Indiana, there's like seven school districts that drive in the middle of that, that, that city every day and pick up kids because they want to educate them and they get more research for, research for them. And, and the reality is the legislature can structure this any way they want. Correct. I mean, it's, it's, it's not like a one-size-fits-all structure. But we have several other states that have sort of already shown us what works, even what doesn't work, and to stay away from. So we have templates. Yeah, we do. And one of the things I would say about the template conversation is we have learned, and we know it doesn't work, if you make a bill based on failing schools. Right? You have to make a bill. The, what works is when you make a bill based on what families want. Right. Right? And the, the bills that work the best are the bills that are the broadest, allow the most families' choice of the widest amount of options. Right. Those are the ones that work the best. Yeah. And uh, and so in Mississippi, we, we're sort of knocking on the door 
Um, I, I feel like the attitude in our state has changed towards this. But more importantly, we're seeing the, the uh, border states that are acting on this. Uh, and, if gosh, if something happened in Texas, of course that would be huge. But, but Florida, which uh, I think is a state that's been under a lot of focus, uh, for one, because they've, they've enjoyed such a huge influx of people into their state, exiting states where policies aren't very good and taxes are crazy. And they have a governor who's running for president. It's getting them a lot of attention as well. There's no doubt about that. Look, <laughs> if, you, if you don't watch it here in Mississippi, you might be surrounded by school choice states, And that's right? exactly right. right. So Tennessee's doing it. You know Louisiana's already got it, and it's going to grow up big next year. That's another tar- state that we think is going to grow up big next year. And Texas does it, and you got Florida doing it. It's going to be all around you. One of the early adopters and uh, success stories for charter schools, the state of Louisiana, Absolutely. New Orleans specifically. Absolutely, right? yeah. And what they've found is that families want choices and options, and, and they don't care. Look, I don't think families really care whether, when you ask them, is it a charter school you're going to or a private school or a public school, a lot of times they don't know and they don't care. They say, this is a school that's working for my kid. Yeah. Um, and it, then there's there's some people that I've heard in our legislature that have this concern about public money that would be diverted effectively with choice to to private institutions, private schools. I mean, like we do with Medicare, right. Medicaid, right. and food stamps, and everything else that we do in this country, and everything else that government buys, from, everything else that government buys, countries. except we just don't allow them to choose the schools that they want. To. And That's what right. the real irony of that is is we give public money for parents to send their kids to preschools that are religious and non-religious. We give public money to kids who are in college to go to religious and non-religious schools. Somehow there's this change when they become a kindergartner and they exit high school. They're two different people, clearly, right? <laughs> so it's a real challenge. The, 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 the logic of the arguments have just never been there. And look, we believe, and the data shows, that if you allow universal choice and you allow parents freedom to choose, it's actually going to make our democracy stronger. There's a disconnect that people have. Public schooling is not the same thing as public education. We believe in a strong public education system that is just not a government-run school system yeah, only that's a great point right? there's a distinction between good public education and public schools that's right and, and that's a democracy totally and a democracy runs on people making truly self-enlightened choices that, have, uh, that are the best interest for their kids and the data shows uh, it makes them better students and it makes them better kids and they vote more yeah it makes total sense and uh, before you go i just make this point i believe every candidate for president as a Republican, supports school choice. 100%. I think that's true. I don't think we've ever seen that before. I don't think we've ever seen that. And, and, and I just support it. They support it full-throated. Absolutely. full. Th- that's a good, good point. Yep. Robert, good talking to you, sir. Appreciate you coming on the show. And, and uh, thank you for being here today and supporting Empower Mississippi through Thanks, all these years. Me. Appreciate it. Appreciate you. Thanks, Robert Robert Enloe, President CEO of Ed Choice. Final segment on Middays is coming up next from two museums for Empower Mississippi's Unleash Mississippi. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for.
Welcome back, everyone. It is midday's final segment here for... From two Mississippi museums, the Element Well Studios moved down to downtown Jackson for Empower Mississippi's Unleash Mississippi event. The event kicks off as soon as we get off the air, and then I'll be moderating the uh, segment on work, the panel discussion on work that comes up at 2.15 this afternoon. Uh, come on down if you're in the area and, and see us and join us at this event. It promises to be informative. Uh, many of the state's leaders are on hand with us today talking about our three main policy focus areas, school choice, common sense criminal justice reform, and of course, work, economic policy. So uh, there lots of questions, by the way, from folks, and appreciate the questions about the, some of the specifics in, in the implementation of school choice. And, and here's what I can tell you about that. And they're all valid questions. They're all good questions. But here's what I can tell you. We can make it be anything we want. Right, it's just a function of of uh, what the legislature can agree to that could pass the House, the Senate, get to the governor's desk uh, for signature and be enacted into law. If we went the route of of uh, Arkansas, for example, where they implemented full universal school choice, yeah, any student can elect to attend any school in the state. Now, the reality is most don't. Most don't cross over, but there are a few exceptional situations where that occurs. And, and also, everyone who has a child in private school, they, too, get their portion of the public money that is allocated to them, the taxpayer money that's allocated. So remember how that works now is is um, that, that money d- still goes into the, the pot, into the school districts, into the public school system, even though the parents have taken their kids out of public schools and they're educating them at home or in a private school setting. And they don't, they don't get then the benefit of the money that the state receives on their behalf could be paid by them, uh, probably more than their share, honestly, in the case of a lot of the, uh, the private school parents. And so that's a question that comes up. Another question was, well, what's to keep the private school from raising the price? Well, nothing. It's a free market. It pro- it's it's a competitive, open, free market. If they just wanted to raise the price um, because now they've got um, parents who are receiving money from uh, the, the money that is assigned to them, that is tied to them uh, from from uh, tax dollars, nothing. But it, it uh, wouldn't make a lot of sense if they intend to uh, sort of manage their, their student population in a way that makes the, the organization viable. So that's just a function of, of a free market. So all we're really doing is saying, hey, look, instead of us keeping your money as government, that you're paying in the form of taxes and and then just allocating that out, we're going to let you decide how to use the money that is allocated to you uh, instead of centrally planning that, uh, just strictly limiting that to public schools. That's really what it's all about. Uh, Donald in Oxford said, do you see a scenario when private schools raising their tuition if school choice passes? That, By the way, that has not been the case in all the states where this has gone into effect. Absolutely has not been the case. Similar to when the government gave subsidies to EVs and the manufacturers raised their prices. Actually, that's not the case, Donald. The EV manufacturers have been lowering their prices. In particular, Tesla announced a major, and they sell more than the, all the others put together, announced a major price decreases 
is in the last few weeks because can't sell enough at the price. In, in even with all the crazy credits and subsidies and stuff like that. So no, I don't see that happening. That has absolutely not been uh, the case in all the other states that have implemented it. Andy says, yeah, the amount for my daughter wouldn't cover all the tuition, but what a relief that amount of money would be for my family. Yeah, and we hear that a lot as well, Andy. I totally underget that. I totally get that. Excuse me. So uh, Ken from Forrest says, I predict coaches running a formidable taxi service if not formally addressed. I just don't see that. Uh, again, this is really about putting options on the table. You're not going to see this just mass transfer of people uh, around the state uh, from the present schools that they're attending into different schools. It, it typically is extenuating circumstances where um, children – are just not in the best setting and they seek the best setting. Something else to keep in mind is in a lot of cases where we have really poor performing school districts, there really is no other option. Even though the money would be available to them for such purposes, there are no charter school. We hope that there would be some, but there are certainly no private schools that they could get to and couldn't make that happen. And there are no close-by high-performing districts that they could just practically use. So uh, it's a deep, wide subject. We're going to keep working on it. We appreciate you so much for joining us uh, today. And we're about to kick off the Unleash Mississippi event here down at two Mississippi museums. Thanks to all our guests for enlightening us. We'll be back with you again tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. Talk Mississippi Media Production.